Better? All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So to review, last week we looked at chapter 1. And all of these requests that Paul had in his prayers for the Ephesian church had to do with spiritual knowledge. What they know, specifically, that they would know God himself, that they would know him more and more. And he, he prayed that the believers in Ephesus would know three specific things. First of all, the hope to which God had called them. Secondly, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And we said that you know, one application of this text to us is to examine ourselves and to ask ourselves, is, is this how we pray for other believers? Do we pray that their knowledge of God would be increased and, and as a result that they would desire and worship and obey Him more fully? This morning we're going to look at another prayer of the Apostle Paul, again here in Ephesians at the end of chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 14. So please follow with me as I read. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul here praying, uh, recording this prayer for us uh, in this letter that he's writing to the Ephesian believers. And and we're going to see this morning, we're going to look at three ways uh, that this prayer is an example to us. And how we pray. So three different examples. First of all, we're going to see an example of posture in prayer. Posture as we pray. We see it in verse 14. Um, There where Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, nowhere in Scripture is there uh, necessarily a prescription for a, quote, correct way uh, to pray as far as like your bodily alignment goes, right? Like physical alignment. Um, now, among the Jewish people, the, the most common way to pray would be standing. And they would lift their hands with their palms facing upward, um, and, and they would pray to the Lord. But we also see instances in Scripture of, of people laying themselves out flat uh, before the Lord on the ground in prayer. We see examples... Um, As mentioned here, of them kneeling in prayer. And and every time we see this kneeling in in Scripture, it demonstrates a a certain earnestness and and a seriousness and a a sincerity in the one who is 
praying. When we see in the Old Testament, when Solomon dedicated uh, the temple, it says that he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. When King Darius signed the document saying that anyone who bowed to um, any other deity except him for 30 days would be thrown into the lion's den, we see that Daniel got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. And so while we don't want to get hung up here in some kind of weird, like legalistic, wooden, rigid understanding of, of Paul including this detail in this verse, I do think that we can say that many times someone's posture on the outside is very indicative of their heart attitude on the inside. Right? The, the phrase, on the edge of their seats, is a thing for a reason, right? It, it tells us something about how, what the person, the, the attitude in their disposition that's sitting in the seat. It tells us that they're, they're interested, they're engaged, they're, they're wanting to hear or see what will happen next. The same way, the posture that we assume in prayer uh, is very indicative of our heart attitude as we pray to the Lord. And so um, by kneeling in prayer, again, is... Um, a, a way to indicate humility, a, a way to indicate submission to the Lord. It, it shows that there's a, a seriousness, there's an urgency to the prayer that, that's being uttered. There, there's a passion that, that comes along with, with this plea to God. And that's what we see here in Ephesians as is, is Paul is lifting up this prayer for the Ephesian believers. And so it kind of makes us think and, and reflect on our own prayer life. And what does our posture in prayer say about our attitude about praying for others? Are we guilty of perhaps taking it too casually a lot of times? Um, should we take a more sincere approach and set aside this specific time and place and kneel on our knees and pour out our hearts to Him with this zeal and this passion and this earnestness? to see that he would work in, in the lives of the ones that we love. So there's a lot to learn here from just this short phrase of, I bow my knees before the Father. So we see this posture that, that Paul has taken in prayer. The second example of prayer that we see in these verses is actually the petition itself, the thing that he asked for. What, what does Paul ask for for these believers. We see it in verse 16. Look there with me. It says, That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And again, like, like last week, we, we want to look at it. Notice the, the content. Notice the, the substance of this request. All kinds of different things that Paul could have prayed here for them, but... Here, specifically, he prays for strength. 
for strength that the Holy Spirit would work powerfully in this miraculous way in them. And, and the question then comes, of course, why strength? Why, why does he pray for this? And the uh, answer is in what Paul has just mentioned up in verse 13 uh, of this chapter. And Paul was suffering uh, affliction. He was suffering pain. He was suffering, suffering trials and um, all of these things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the believers in Ephesus, and here specifically through imprisonment. It means shackled and, and in chains. And, um, and he mentions in that verse that they not lose heart. They not lose heart. And this word that means uh, to lose one's motivation, uh, to continue a, a desirable pattern of conduct or activity. We could translate it lose enthusiasm. We could translate it to be discouraged, um, basically to give up. So it seems that there were some believers in Ephesus that were so saddened and they were so grieved and they were so burdened by the way here that Paul's been treated that they were tempted to be overcome by these different feelings and emotions and to be discouraged to the point that they quit. And so Paul writes to them, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. And so here Paul prays for this supernatural strength and power to be brought about by the Holy Spirit in their inner being. To not lose heart, but to persevere in the days ahead. Notice further in this petition, in, in verse 16, that Paul uses this phrase here, according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Um, Pastor uh, John MacArthur uses a, a helpful illustration here, I, I thought, um, talking about a multimillionaire. Think about somebody who's very wealthy. And so some, a multimillionaire, to give $50 to something, is, is it's not even a drop in the bucket to them, right? But if, if they give um, according to their riches, it's going to be a substantially greater sum of money that they give, right? It's kind of like when a, a professional um, athlete, you know, gets fined a couple of hundred thousand dollars for something. And we're like, yeah, that's going to hurt him. Um, but if that same athlete is fined according to his riches, he's going to feel it a lot more. Right? It's going to be an actual consequence for his actions. But to, to think of it that way, and then to think of Almighty God giving according to the riches of his glory. What, what an incredible prayer that is to pray for someone how, how do we even begin to think about these these riches i mean his glory is infinite it's inexhaustible so therefore the ability of the father to strengthen these believers with the power of the spirit is immeasurable it, it, it's impossible to calculate and yet that is precisely the extent to which paul prays for them that their souls be strengthened and enlivened and encouraged. It's an amazing petition here that, that Paul makes on behalf of these believers. And he does it because of his great love for them. It's an incredible thing. And we, so we've seen, first of all, this posture on, on his knees, bowing on his knees before the Father. We've seen this um, petition here of, of 
praying that they be strengthened. Uh, and, and the third thing we see this morning is purpose. An example of, of purpose in prayer. Um, or we could say the reason for the prayer, the, the motivation behind Paul praying these things, or um, the desired outcome of, of the prayer. All these are, are different ways we could think about it and kind of label what Paul writes in verses 17 to 19. And there are three purposes that we see in these verses, in, in verses 17 to 19. And, and each one of them is kind of marked by um, it's really interesting when you look at it and start to break it apart and, and look at how it's put together that it's marked by these um, conjunctions or, or words that tell us like, hey, this is the purpose for which I'm praying these things. And we'll see that as we, we go through them. Um, first, the, the first purpose we see here of, of strengthening of, of the believers in power is so that Christ may dwell in their hearts, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. We see it in verse 17. And, of course, here the question arises, but if they're believers here that Paul is writing to, um, aren't they already indwelt by Christ? And the answer is yes, they, they are, if they are believers. And then the que- follow-up question is, so, then why would Paul write it this way? Why, why would he say this? Uh, why would he phrase it this way? And the key to this answer seems to be in the word dwell in verse 17. The word dwell. Um, so there are two words uh, in Greek that can mean dwell. One refers to a temporary dwelling. One refers to a permanent dwelling. So the word used here is the latter. It's a place of permanence. Um, difference between having a place to stay on the one hand and then having a home. Like staying in a hotel versus being at your house. Like, I don't know about you, but I like my bed. I like my bathroom. I like my shower. I like my couch. Why? Because I've made it into the place where I'm at ease. Right where I'm most comfortable. And that's the point here. The, the, the hearts of the believers would more and more be a, a place, not only where Jesus could be present, but that it would become more and more his home. Uh, again, um, John MacArthur, he puts it this way. Jesus enters the house of our hearts the moment he saves us. But he cannot live there in comfort and satisfaction until it is cleansed of sin and filled with his will. So, um, even though it's, it's a phrase in a way that's kind of strange to us, and in a nutshell, what Paul's praying here is for sanctification. For sanctification of these believers. That, that their hearts and their minds would continually and progressively be more like Christ. And, and it's incredible here that that's, that is the desire of Paul's heart for these people. Again, because of the great love that he, he has for them. That, that Christ might dwell more fully in them day by day by day. So that's the first purpose we see in this passage. The second purpose that we see is that, or so that, or in order that, you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So the, the second purpose we could say it as um, that the believers in Ephesus might comprehend all the different dimensions of the love of Christ. Now, when I come and I read phrases like that, a lot of times I really, I struggle with it. On first reading or at first glance, it, the language can be difficult to understand. It, it, it seems really hard to, to grab onto with my mind, to really, really understand what's being said. Um, but there are a couple of things that I read about this um, that as I was preparing that really helped me uh, begin to kind of pull it apart in a way and understand what's being said. And so I'll share them with you. The first, um, John Stott wrote in his commentary, it seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, because that's the theme of what Paul has just been writing about. Um, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Dr. John MacArthur, again, in, he wrote in his commentary, and, and this really kind of hits home when we think about it um, and, and apply it to, our, our, to us personally. He says this, When we see love's breadth reflected in God's acceptance of, of Gentile and Jew equally, in Christ, when, when we can see love's length in God's choosing us before the foundation of the world for a salvation that will last through all eternity. We can see love's height in God's having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and in raising us up and sealing us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of these taking them from the book of Ephesians itself. We can see love's depth in God's reaching down to the lowest Levels of depravity to redeem those who are dead in trespasses and sins. God's love can reach any person in any sin. And it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It takes us into the very presence of God and sits us on His throne. And so I, I share that with you because for me that was really helpful. In, in trying to flesh out this phrase that we read at the end of verse 17. And so here Paul prays that this incredible love of God that, that stretches infinitely in, in all different dimensions might be known by the believers there in Ephesus. And again, when we think about it, we think about this kind of prayer being prayed. Is there any more loving prayer that we can pray for fellow believers than this? John Calvin wrote this uh, about this verse. The love of Christ is held out to us as a subject which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations and in which we ought to be wholly plunged. He who is in possession of this alone has enough. Beyond it there is nothing solid, nothing useful, nothing in short that is proper or sound. Knowing the love of Christ in all its dimensions is enough. And notice here that there are a couple of different facets to this. 
And, and two of them ha- have to do with understanding the love of Christ within the context of believers gathered together. And we'll see how this is brought out. First of all, read at the end of verse 17, that in order to know this love, the Ephesians must be rooted and grounded in love themselves. And, and so these are two, it's two illustrations that Paul's using, uh, two different ones. One, take it from agriculture. So a, a, a tree with strong, deep, healthy network of roots underneath it in the ground. Um, the other illustration of being grounded has to do with um, actually architecture, with, with building a, a deep, sturdy, rock-solid foundation under the building um, that you're putting up. And so these illustrations, are then, they're used to show us that the love that he's talking about among the saints in the Christian life is not a, a superficial surface level kind of thing, but it's at the very foundation and the very core of the Christian life. And we see that the the rooting and the grounding that we see of of verse 17 is based on the indwelling of Christ in verse 16. So then it's it's through Christ living in us that then produces the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives towards each other the first of which is love. So we understand here that the fullness of God's loving Christ towards us, and then we show that love to others in the context of the local church. Secondly, we see in verse 18, and it's the phrase, with all the saints. He writes, with all the saints. So again, this, this phrase takes us, um, you know, for, the idea of understanding the love of Christ, it takes it out of like merely an individual understanding into this corporate understanding of the love of Christ. So Paul's praying here for the love of Christ to be known to the believers in Ephesus in the context of the church body together. And we might ask, that, well, how is this love um, in the church body, love of Christ, how is it seen? Um, how is it demonstrated? How is it made manifest in, in the church body? And, and there's a lot of ways that this is seen, but if we keep with the book of Ephesians, then we see things like in chapter 4. Paul writes about bearing with one another in love, with humility and gentleness and patience. Further, he writes about being kind to one another, being tenderhearted, Forgiving one another. Even as Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, he, he writes about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. So it, it, the idea of even through the music when we gather together, we're, we're teaching one another, we're encouraging one another, we're edifying one another in all that we do. Verse 21 of chapter 5 talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, just a few ways we see even in the the next few chapters in the book of Ephesians of how this corporate love of knowing the love of Christ comes out and is demonstrated within the body of Christ. 
in the local church. There's one more phrase here to, to consider in this purpose of knowing the love of Christ in all its dimensions, and that is at the beginning of verse 19. So if you look there with me, it says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, it's a very interesting way to phrase that. Um, it's almost kind of like, I want you to know that goes beyond knowing. And we know that the knowledge of God and, and of love of Christ does go beyond all human wisdom and human understanding. Paul wrote to the uh, church in Corinth, said, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And at the same time, those of us who are spiritual, uh, using the language here, those of us who are believers, who have been born again, we also, we will never know all of the love of Christ. Right? It's infinite, and we are finite. Even... um, in heaven, we'll never be able to drill down to the bottom and exhaust our knowledge of the love of Christ. But we will continue to grow for an eternity in that knowledge. More and more with, with thankfulness, with worship to him who first loved us. It's an incredible truth. It's an incredible motivation here for, for Paul to pray for those whom he loved in Ephesus. And... Lastly, this morning, there's a third purpose here. Um, we see it in the text. We, we find it in verse 19. It says, That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that these believers will be filled with the fullness of God Himself. And, and thinking through this, again, what does it mean to be filled with all the fullness? of God. It means being filled with the presence of God. Filled with with the power of God. Filled with the purity of God. Really, we we can name all of the attributes of God that we share with Him by being made in His image. His justice, His his loving kindness, His mercy. Being being filled here, it it brings to mind a cup or or a container that, that we pour contents into until it's even with the top, right? Almost overflowing. It is full. And at that point, we're, we then are, are merely, we're a vessel that, that holds God in us. It, it, inwardly, there, there's, there's none of us and there's all of Him. This idea can be seen later in Ephesians in chapter 5 where Paul instructs the believers in Ephesus to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It brings to mind Paul's statement to the Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of him and none of us, being completely, progressively throughout our lives, made more like him and and filled with God. Um, it also makes me think of, you know, if we're totally filled 
with God, then we're totally controlled by God. We're, we're dominated by Him in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, Him, him working through us. Um, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that in this life there is going to be this old self. There's going to be this flesh that, that remains in us. We've got to fight. We've got to work against this old self to mature and to grow day by day by the power of the Spirit in us. But the goal and the prayer here of Paul is that this sanctification, this conforming to Christ would be so complete and fulfilled in the Ephesians that they would know and experience this complete filling of God in them. And again, that's, that's the goal of our lives. There's, there's one more quote I'd like to share with you this morning that I, I came across. And, um, it's from Matthew Henry. He wrote this. Those who receive grace for grace from Christ's fullness may be said to be filled with the fullness of God. Should not this satisfy man? Must he need fill himself with a thousand trifles, fancying thereby to complete his happiness. To be filled with the fullness of God, all of him, none of us, is that not enough to satisfy? So these last couple of weeks, we've come and looked at these prayers that, that we find have been recorded for us. In Scripture, and, and at the same time, we've uh, seen how this Apostle Paul, how he so loved these believers in this church that, that he planted in Ephesus, that he, he, he prayed earnestly that these great and profound theological truths would be, tr- would be true in their lives, that they would know and, and experience these things. And so... May we take this example. May we pray this same way for one another in, our, in Flat Creek, in our local body, that, that we will pray for one another, that we will know the reality of God and who He is and, and the hope of His calling and the riches of His inheritance. We pray for each other and that we will know and be strengthened by the power of His Spirit in order to be with Christ to know Him and to know the extent of His love. It's an incredible lesson we find here in Ephesians. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that we've had together this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that it teaches us. We thank You for the example of prayer. Um, Father, may we earnestly seek to lift up one another, Lord, in our local congregation in these ways. And so, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.